extend a, a thanks, an incredible debt of gratitude to those who have served in the armed forces as we remember that we don't just have a day off tomorrow, we have a, a reason to think and meditate on why we're freely able to practice our faith here in this country. So I'm incredibly grateful. So thank you, men and women, for that. Will you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's after 1 Timothy. You guys don't know that? There was a somewhat popular book that came out a few years ago called The Year of Living Biblically. It's not a Christian book. It's actually written by a, a man who is a, a Jewish agnostic. But his quote, and how he even starts the book, is he says, I'm officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. <laughs> he lives in Manhattan, and uh, for an entire year he attempts to follow, and this is, real, this is real life, attempts to follow every rule of the Bible as literally as possible. This includes everything from the big laws like the Ten Commandments to the Levitical laws, like what you eat and how you dress. For example... Leviticus says that men should leave the edges of their beards unshaven. So this guy stops shaving and ends up with a massive beard, like he's in ZZ Top. He stops wearing clothes of any mixed fibers. Which I don't even know how you request that. Um, he even tries to fling tiny pebbles at people without them noticing in order to stone adulterers. <laughs> this is real. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. I wish I was. He does this for a whole year. And uh, part of the story is he says it drove his wife insane. I mean, because you imagine for a year. Uh, now, obviously, there are some massive problems with this approach to living biblically. Um, this story does, however, sort of epitomize, for me, a lot of how people feel about the Bible. Overall, people struggle to read and apply the Word of God uh, so much so that in a recent article published by The Atlantic, 56% of Americans say they believe the Bible is both inspired and inerrant. Yet only 9% confess to reading it regularly. So here's, here's what we have. In other words, yes, I believe it is perfect. Yes, I believe it will give me everything I need to thrive in this life. But no, I don't open it regularly. If you are claiming Christ, but are not in his word, it can only be for a few reasons. One, you simply don't find it interesting. Is that safe to say? You, you find the results of redemption interesting. You like the savior part, but the story of redemption just does not appeal to you in the way it should. Maybe you don't understand it, and it's just that you're not taking the time to learn it. Or, in a world where everything fights for your relevance, uh, the Bible just doesn't make the cut. So many issues with uh, this next one. Pastors will explain to me all that I need to know. That is a dangerous game. It's dangerous for two reasons. One, I just think about how many people had to die for you to receive the word of God in your language so that you could read it the way it was meant to be read in your language at your disposal at your time so it could be a personal relationship with jesus christ i mean you have that opportunity and you wouldn't take it and then second that is just not at all how this relationship is supposed to work you are supposed to know your bible so well in fact i'll go a step farther a pastor should want his congregation to know the bible so well 
that if I say something that's not in line with the word of God, you call me out on it because it's so much more important for me to get this right than for my pride to be effective. And that's how a healthy church would operate. But a lot of us have just stood still afraid to offend. The leadership of Amelia Baptist Church is asking that you in love, look at Matthew 18 if you need guidelines for this, Come to us if anything is said from the pulpit that's not aligned perfectly with God's word. That is a heavy responsibility that we take very seriously, and it should be, because it's the word of God. We did not invent the message. We are but the messenger, and a humble one at that, hopefully, God-willing, spirit-led. And also, some of us may look at the word like the man does in this experiment. Now, a lot of us may not have tried this out in the same way he did. But a lot of us may look at the Bible as a list of terms and conditions. You know that thing you get when you buy like new Apple software and it gives you like 82 pages of rules and things to expect it. And you're like, ah, I agree. And you just click the end. You're like, there's no way I'm spending all the time. Some of you in here probably do read the terms and conditions. I just have a feeling there are a few of you are like, I read every terms and conditions that I'm given. How dare you? I just click accept. I'll be the first one to admit it. I accept. That's it. Upon reading 2 Timothy 2, verse 7, the verse we'll be in today, David Platt once said this. The goal of the Christian life is to meditate on the word of God until you can see yourself doing it for the glory of God, the God, the Savior who has done everything for you. And that's where we're going to sit today, right in that truth. Now, this is going to be rather odd, but we're going to stand for one verse to respect uh, the order of things and how Neil has done this. So we're going to read one verse, but with that said, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Second Timothy two verse seven. Paul saying this to Timothy, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Church, always remember that the power is in the word of God. You may be seated. Wasn't that a nice little exercise? We are currently walking through, you saw the graphic up there, we are currently walking through the pastoral epistles uh, in a series called Passing the Torch. Uh, like I said, these are conversations between Paul and his protégés, specifically Timothy. Um, uh, Timothy was the young pastor of the church of Ephesus. Uh, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'll see that we're still in this passage uh, 1 through 9 in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And what we're doing is we're unpacking it verse by verse to discover what it really means to be a good soldier for Christ Jesus. And in verse 7, we find a good soldier knows how to use his weapon. A good soldier knows how to use his sword, rather. Because the fact is, you can own a weapon without knowing how to use it. I always think of Don Knotts and the shakiest gun in the West. In the same respect, you can lift your Bible above your head, acknowledge that it is there, and you can spend the next 30 minutes hearing a message completely void of the gospel and man-centered in nature rather than Christ-centered and really having nothing to do with your mission at hand. And I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable to say that many of us are failing to meditate in the scriptures in the way we need to meditate in the scriptures because we are struggling to see the mission. We're being told that we're supposed to be good soldiers for Christ Jesus, but the mission gets fuzzy. And in that, our biblical meditation and the importance of putting the word of God first and foremost in our life will suffer with it. 
Just look at your normal week if you don't believe me. Specifically for those of us still in the process of raising children. How often does it look like survive in your house instead of thrive? There are times I step into the middle of my living room as my children are just kind of like battling over my soul. It's the best way I could put it. Just screaming and kind of demanding things that reasonable people wouldn't demand. And you're just in the middle of it. And then there's just like a place in your mind that you go. You just are kind of like transcendent. You're looking down at yourself trying to deal with your kids. You kind of think of yourself like uh, Maria from Sound of Music. Now she's in the field. You know, it's just like wildflowers. It's like that, but it's like the brink of insanity. It's not. It's the opposite of what Maria is experiencing in the field, where she's like carefree over the Alps. It's not what's happening. You just want to get away from that circumstance as fast as possible. There's a lot of that issue that just kind of goes on with, if I could just make it to tonight. If I can just get the kids in bed. If I can just, if they can just sleep. If I can get five hours. If we can get to Sunday. If we can survive Sunday. We can just get through the holidays. You see, that looks a lot like just trying to survive rather than thriving in the life that we were meant to thrive in. And in the same way, I need to sit back and go, bro, it's not about you. You've lost sight of why you have been given these two girls to parent. You have lost sight. You were supposed to be loving them and training them and correcting them and being patient with them and using this opportunity to look more like Jesus Christ. You have lost sight of the mission. Because you are obsessed with the comfort. How often do we lose sight of the fact that once we claim Christ, we are his representation to a lost and dying world? Do we get that weight? Do we get the weight that once we profess belief in Jesus Christ, that we then become ambassadors of the the faith that we profess? The scary part is regardless of whether or not you acknowledge it, people are looking at your life, your knowledge of the word, And you're walking Christ to see what the one true Messiah is all about. They will pick you and your behavior out of a lineup before they pick a Bible up off the shelf. You are who they see when they are looking for Jesus. This is a very incredible weight. And we have the word of God that instructs us in this way. And is it collecting dust? Is it really what we think it is? Or do we really believe we think or we, we believe what it is that we think it is. I don't know. I got lost in that. But why is it important to heed Paul's words of reflection and meditation, guys? Because we will resemble what we reflect upon. We will resemble what we reflect upon. It is in our makeup. Look down at your text for me in Second Timothy chapter two, verse seven. Paul says the words, think over what I say. Some translations might read, reflect on what I am saying. And he isn't referring to his improvisational opinions on the matters facing Timothy and the Ephesus church. He is referring to all scriptures, Old and New Testament. He goes on to write in chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is perfect, profitable for training in righteousness. And herein lies the answer to the question, why meditate? Why biblical meditation? The answer, church, is righteousness. It is all about aiming for righteousness. Christ has laid a perfect standard of righteousness. And if we belong to him, we will seek to reflect it. And the only way to seek to reflect the righteousness that he has provided us is to meditate in his promises, to know his word well, to see the word for the powerful, refining tool it is 
And which in our time, when we have our time in the Word, is that always a nice, relaxing massage of a process? Our time in the Word can often feel like we're getting beat up. Because that Bible then becomes a mirror and shows us the things of ourselves that we need to change. It hurts. A good Bible study will hurt you sometimes. And that's okay. Because what's the goal? What's the mission? It's to be righteous because Christ is righteous. You don't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then not want to look like Him. You want to resemble Him. You want to reflect upon Him so that your life can resemble that. In this sermon, I hope to do two things. Define biblical meditation as opposed to other types of meditation and then show you why biblical meditation will lead to a life of righteousness with some help from Moses and King David. Now, some of you may be thinking already, I heard the word meditation and I got to admit to you, Adam, it freaks me out. What is the difference between biblical meditation and Eastern meditation? Right? So well, Eastern meditation, Eastern religion, New Age spiritualism, they've had such a strong influence on our world that when we hear the word meditation, we immediately think of like yoga poses or chanting mantras, right? Just like hum, like we just think of humming and just being still. I remember one time my friend invited me to be a part of like some yoga at his house and I'm, I'm only a good enough friend to where I'll do that once. Like, I'll, you want to do CrossFit? Sure, one time. Like I'm the friend, I'm the friend that's like once we'll do it and then everything else, just find another friend, find a new friend. So I remember being in that living room and you know, there's mats. There's always already uncomfortable when there are chairs available and you have to sit on a mat. And so um, he's like, all right, so you want to try some yoga? Sure, man. Uh, and the first thing he says to me, he goes, empty your mind. I was like, what do you mean, sleep? It's like, my mind's not even empty while I'm sleeping. That's just a weird request to be given. Um, the object of New Age meditation, real story, the object of New Age meditation is to empty your mind of thoughts and images in order to enter kind of hypnotic state. In all seriousness, they want you to turn off your peripheral cortex. I want to see Lynn sign peripheral cortex real quick. <laughs> Your peripheral cortex <laughs> moderates things like your social behavior and your decision making. I was like, bro, my wife demands that my peripheral cortex stay on at all times. I was like, when that peripheral cortex goes off and I'm not in charge of my decision making, I'm doing things like an ice falls on the floor, I kick it under the refrigerator, and she just leaves. Like, she just gets in the car and goes. Like, she's like, enough, I've had enough of this guy. I'm like, is there any way I can get two peripheral cortexes? Like, we need to be going the other way. Not emptying minds. I need more knowledge. Like, I need more logic and rationale for the sake of my marriage. And that is exactly what biblical meditation is telling us to do. It's saying, fill your mind, not empty it. As we seek to be righteous because he is righteous, unlike Eastern meditation practices, this is just amazing if you know Christ. We are to be filled with the words, the promises, the commands, edifying things of God. Filling our head with those things day and night. And then resembling the Savior we claim to worship. We will resemble what we reflect upon. Joshua 1.8, by the way, is a perfect text for this. 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. And the setting of this verse is right after the death of Moses and Israel is on the borders of the promised land and they're ready for war. They're about to have a war, a fight. And in this context, you might expect the Lord to give Joshua an intense, detailed game plan as to how to take this promised land that they have been promised. Lord, give us something we can use. Send us Napoleon Bonaparte. Like, we need to get in there. And this is what God gives them. Have your Bible on your tongue around the clock. You see, that's where the true victory lies. Not in what they wanted, a battle to be won. He said the most important thing in your life, no matter what you're going through, is that you meditate on my promises day and night. You see, dwelling upon the word of the Lord who is dwelling within us is more than just speed reading through the texts. The word ponder is actually brought up several times. Ponder the word of God. Lovingly consider his promises. Someone in love with the character of God isn't dragging their feet to get lost in his promises. Someone in love with Christ Jesus, they're going to want to throw away the sin that is getting in the way of their Bible study. They're going to want to throw away the sin that's preventing them from being in the word the way they should. As a Christian, it goes on to say we should be living in the repetition of the texts. We ponder so that things take root in our hearts, not just in our mind. We think upon the life-giving scriptures so that we are godly workers, and parents and grandparents, and brothers and sisters and spouses and church members. We ponder the text so that they, they take root because we want to be better family of faith to each other. But honest question, do we know how much we need it? Do we really understand how much we need it? And my question to you is, has the Holy Spirit convinced and convicted in your life to where through his word you are ready to reach other hearts with this changing truth? This is what the Holy Spirit does, but what I'm trying to tell you is it's connected perfectly to how much we are wanting to meditate in his word. A lot of us are really excited to share a gospel that we don't know all that well. And that could do more damage than it could good. Will you please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 18. There's a reason I'm doing this. While you are turning there, I would like to remind you of Paul the Apostle's consistent usage of the Old Testament texts. Because this issue has been a pressing one of late. People are thinking they don't have to preach the Old Testament. Biblical meditation includes both testaments. I'm just, I'm, I'm still in shock that, I, that this has to be addressed, really. I mean, I, I shouldn't be shocked by now. I really shouldn't. But from huge pulpits... We are seeing people saying all you really need is listing off a couple books of the Bible in the New Testament. Can I just make something painfully clear? Because I don't get the mic that often. A primary use of the Old Testament text by the earliest Christians was to highlight the fulfillment of the awaited Messiah's coming. They found themselves living in the age of fulfillment. They were there at Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit rained down and changed everyone's lives. 
Peter started preaching with fervor and excitement, and they got to witness thousands of people be saved and baptized. That will get a believer going. They were living in this age of promise fulfilled, and they were able to look back at the Old Testament to see where the promises started. Paul directly relied on the authority of a prophet or simply struck Scripture itself by identifying the source of his quotations all the time. If you're in your Bible study, you see constantly in Paul's pastoral epistles, his referencing of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Deuteronomy. Paul came from a strongly Jewish-educated background. It is very safe to say he had at least the Pentateuch memorized. Today we see more and more preachers consider the Old Testament old news. Almost like it gets in the way of a book like John. And because of their example, church, we can often forget that without prophecies, we don't have prophecies fulfilled. The perfect word of God consists of two testaments, one story, one God, with everything from Genesis to Revelation pointing to one Messiah. So when Paul says, think over what I say, this is all back to the point of the message. He is referencing all inspired, inerrant scripture that would later be canonized for us. For the wisdom of the word does not contradict itself. The world will continue to find, try to find contradictions in the text, and they will lose every single time. Everything that has been given to us by God the author, by way of the Holy Spirit, through humbled, flawed men, should be thoughtfully and prayerfully considered. You should be in Isaiah as much as you are in John. Don't just pick your favorite texts or the ones written under Tim Tebow's eyes. That's not the game plan. So by the time we get to Deuteronomy 30, if you're looking down at your Bibles, Moses had been preaching a 30-chapter sermon to the people. If you think our sermons run long, Moses had been preaching a 30-chapter sermon to his people. And in chapters 29 through 30, he comes to the climactic conclusion of that sermon in two major points that we're going to be going over in the next 10 or 15 minutes. Number one, read the Bible as if your life depended on it. Read the Bible as if your life depended on it. Chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. Look down at your text there, verses 15 through 18. That'll be on the screen if you want to look there. We'll, we'll read it together. It says this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. The bottom line here is the ultimate stability of each part of our lives depends on how well we know God's word for that area. It just does. Jesus described it like this. He's building a house on two different foundations. One of sand, which is the world's promises, right? And then one of firm foundation, which are the promises of God that can never be broken, at least by Him. 
The houses are the same, but when the storm comes, which they inevitably will, we have been dealing with so many abrupt circumstances in this church over the last five months. Things that we did not expect to happen that, sh- that happened, and we have just had to sus- be sustained by the Holy Spirit and move through as a faith family. It's brought us closer together, but there's still mourning. There's still pain. This is an inevitable part of being a human being, breathing on this earth. The house on the sandy foundation falls apart when the storms come. But the house on the rock survives. We live in Amelia Island, and it is a beautiful place to live most of the time. But this weekend, there's a tropical storm warning. People's Memorial Day plans have been affected. Floridians just call it light rain. It is important we have well-built homes in case of hurricanes, right? Many of you have lives, and please hear this in love. Hear this in love. Many of you have lives that look great when the weather is great. But you are not equipped to weather the storms of doubt, abrupt tragedy, cancer, illness, miscarriages, pain, job loss, church loss, divorce, addiction. When those seasons come, and they will come, a house built on sand will crumble. For some of you, that may be happening right now, and I do not want to appear insensitive. I want to appear faithful to the text. No matter what part of life you call into question, whether it be your job, your relationship, your marriage, money, retirement, children, health, physical fitness, the stability of every part of your life is determined by how well it is anchored in God's word. I'm raising two children. They act like children most of the time. And I'm, I'm wanting for their dad, I'm wanting them to love Jesus and know the word well. It's impossible to think that they're going to know the word perfectly. But if my kids can grow up and read the Bible as if their life depended on it, if God can grant us those kind of hearts, the gratitude and thankfulness I experience over that will be overwhelming. It won't be done perfectly. But that's the entire point of biblical meditation, is that we can't. The entire point of the reason why he says day and night and not just when it's convenient is because we can't keep it perfectly. That's how much we need him. We sing it, don't we? Lord, I need you. I surrender all. We're good at singing it. But when those storms come and those things are tested, we're wondering where our life jacket is and it's still on the shelf collecting dust. There's a seriousness and a weight to this calling to not just read or glance or give it the time of day, but to biblically get lost in the word of God and let it eat you alive. That is the idea. To have it cover you to such a degree people can't see you anymore. It's more than just stability, though. 
It's more than just stability being offered in the word of God. But the blessing and cursing of God is being put on display here. And a great passage for that. To go more in line with where we are in the Old Testament and the New Testament is Psalm 1. And I'm just going to read the first two verses, but the first six do it justice. Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Moses, to King David, to Christ Jesus, they have a consistent message to the Apostle Paul, full circle. What characteristic of the righteous man does this psalm speak? Total commitment to the word of God. Two practices evident in his life regarding his commitment to God's word. One, his delight in the law of the Lord. No one's having to convince him or talk him into picking up the Bible and giving it the time of day. He is excited to be in the law of the Lord. He loves the Lord so much. He wants to obey it as perfectly as he can. He is excited to open its pages. It's something both precious and special to him, even more so than the possessions or even distractions that this life can offer us. And number two, in his law, he meditates day and night. It's something that is a part of his prayer life and spiritual walk that is foremost in occupying his thoughts and time. Are we reading the Bible with that sort of weight in mind? The word of God must occupy our thoughts and time foremost. Yet in a drastic contrast, we allow so many other things in this world to take up residence reserved for the study of the gospel. I remember the more and more I would learn and memorize scripture, I started to forget the original cast of MASH. When I worked for the radio station for like three years in my early 20s, what I call the dark ages, I would, I would be at these places and, and winning trivia contests in the name of the radio station over mindless, useless information that I'll admit I still love. Absolutely. If I can tell you like the, who played the first husband on Bewitched, I'm going to tell you. Like That's going to be something I find interesting. Is it Dick York or Dick Sargent? Anyway, that's not important. It's not important. The idea is the more I'm in the word of God, that stuff starts to go away. And you know what? I take such delight or hope to God by the spirit of God. Take such delight in the laws of the Lord. I'm okay with it. Because I don't have my pride in how well I know certain things anymore. The only thing I feel has eternal significance in my life is how well I know these pages. That is going to be a difference between have a godly marriage and an ungodly one. That pop culture reference will not help me with my wife. It will not help me raise godly kids in an increasingly ungodly world. By being under his word, we place our love for him on display. Can you see that? Walking in his righteousness and are blessed with his presence. When's the last time you've just felt blessed by the presence of God? Can I urge you just to not be desensitized by church? Don't be desensitized because you keep going to the same things and being part of the same things, but keep the mission in mind. If you're meditating on his word day and night, you will not be bored when his word is being preached. Even from flawed preachers. Have we submitted to Christ because of what he can provide us here in this life? Or have we submitted to Christ because we know he is who he says he is and we want him? 
You see, here's the second part to this that matters that you have to say, or this whole first part doesn't make sense. It's not just read the Bible like our life depended on it. We don't just read the Bible. We encounter the person within the Bible. It's our gateway to Jesus. You don't want heaven for heaven. You want heaven because you want Jesus. At the end of his sermon in chapter 30, if you look at the verses, it's 19 and 20 there. Moses takes a surprising turn in his words. He says this. Today I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life. And it's an odd turn of the text. If you have to follow me real quick, we're almost at home stretch. Follow me here. It's an odd turn of the text because up until this point, Moses said obedience to the word will be our life. And then almost inexplicably, he switches it over to say God is our life. He doesn't say hold fast to his word, does he? He says what? Hold fast to him. So which is our life? Christians, Christ followers, which is our life? Which is it? Is it obedience to God or is it obedience to his word? For us to better understand the distinction, let me word it this way. Is your life dependent on how well you obey the words of this book? In one sense, yes. But here's the dilemma. Do any of us do it perfectly? It's a quick no. Paul said we have all together become unprofitable. He says no one is righteous, no, not one. David said, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? So at the end of Moses' sermon, he points to an even greater hope than our obedience to his word. Are you hearing me, church? He points to an even greater hope than the obedience to his word. Our meditation of his commands. He points to God himself. He will himself be our life and salvation. We want the word because we want him This comes back full circle to Paul in Romans 10, 5 through 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based in the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But verse 8 If you memorize anything, memorize verse 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sweet words. Those words are sweet to a rotten sinner. To someone at times who can't wait to sin against our gracious God. Those words are life changing. He didn't have to get involved but he did. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and one is saved. Just in case this entire time people are thinking all that matters is the wisdom of your mind. All that matters is how much knowledge you can fit into your brain. Absolutely not. For with the heart one believes in is justified. We will resemble what we were reflecting upon. The word of faith Moses talks about. 
And the one that Paul references, do you know what that word of faith is? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is what's so amazing, because we just attached how many passages together? Old and New Testament, by the way. The primary purpose of biblical meditation is not to give us a list of assignments. Be honest, you don't have to raise your hand. But who here has ever approached the Bible like it's just a list of do's and don'ts and assignments, and we're just like, not It's an honest, fleshly response to God's word. Every one of us have probably gone through a time where we felt that way. But to tell us about an offer of grace and salvation to be received as a gift, it isn't a list of tasks of what he demands we do for him. It's the glorious good news of what he has already done for us. And in faith, we get to grab a hold of it. If we treat the scriptures like a checklist or some kind of order, or like we're learning parallelograms or something else in high school where we never use it again. To earn God's favor, favor, we will continue to struggle to read the text. If we look at it like a checklist, we will continue to struggle to read it. We tend to look at it like an instruction manual. And men, what do we do with instruction manuals? Some of us are like, I use them. You're the minority. Biblical meditation comes alive for the Christ follower when we realize Christ is the subject of all the scriptures. He is the Word, the Lord, the Son who reveals His Father, the promised hope, the true temple, the everlasting sacrifice. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the ultimate king. And once you understand that, once you understand who Jesus is and the fact that the whole Bible is all about him, you stop reading the scriptures asking, what does this mean for me right now? And you start asking, what do I learn here of Christ Jesus? Knowing the Bible is about him and not me means that instead of reading while obsessing about me, I can spend this time gazing upon him. Maybe you are bored with the word of God because you're reading it while obsessing about you. Maybe that's why it doesn't come alive for you. Pondering his goodness, mercy, grace, power, and love. This will excite those who have the spirit of the Lord living within them. Church, the way to life and peace, by the way, is not to figure everything out perfectly. God help us if that's the case. The way to life and peace is to seek the person within the pages. C.S. Lewis has two quotes on this subject. And by the way, one of these creeped me out. I read this first quote by C.S. Lewis and I'll, I'll, just, I'll read it and let you know. It was number one, studying the Bible deeply is like staring at a peephole and suddenly having someone stare back at you. I was alone in this church at night when I first read that quote. There is nothing more frightening than being alone at a church in the darkness. Something about it, I don't understand. Maybe there's a theological reason. Maybe we'll explore it next week. I don't know. But here's the quote that didn't give me nightmares. You ready? Number two, don't just read the Bible. See the Savior and then let it read you. In other words... Experience the living, moving word in the living, moving God. Why? Because meditation, biblical meditation, will foster repentance 
and make us prefer God's house to our own house. You know, in honesty, it's not that many of us in here don't at least confess with our mouths or believe that the word of God is a living one. I think, I think a lot of us can raise our hands and say, yeah, we believe it's a living, breathing word of God. I think the, the head of meditation is that we actually believe it and we're a bit scared by it. Because we know if we spend a certain amount of time in it, we could change. And a lot of us don't want that change. But Christ wants that change. And the Spirit of God will have that change. And we will be a people known by our love and our obedience to God's Word. But first, we have to be a people of God's Word. Let us be encouraged in that. Will you pray with me today? Father God, we thank you so much for the text. Even though our flesh does not want to change because of Christ, the cross, his resurrection, and the power of the word, we absolutely do. And it is by your grace that we do. Father God, this is what we pray the world will see. We want, to, we want the world to look at our church, other churches, our sister churches in the community, biblical churches all over the world. And we want the lost and the dying to see people who have been changed because of what Christ has said he has finished. We want our faith to be in our actions. We want people to look at us and see you. Father, will you give us an overwhelming, impacting change in our lives that we are a people known for how deep we want to be in the word of God. Father, as Mike begins to sing we continue in worship today. If there's anyone here who knows in their heart that they are a believer in Jesus Christ, but they need more of the word of God, would you please, Father God, by the Holy Spirit, encourage them to reach out to a member in their faith family, to someone on their road, just to say, I need prayer. Please help. My family is at stake. Let us be a people that pour into each other because we know that there is Christ on the other side of brokenness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.